From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Best of the Best, the 2017 Third Coast Festival broadcast. The Third Coast Festival is an independent arts organization dedicated to great radio, heart, soul, and ears. We gather the best stories from around the world all year long and share them in a variety of ways, via radio and podcast, at live listening events, and honestly, every other way we can think of. We also host a worldwide competition to honor the very best audio documentaries of the year. This year, we received more than 600 entries from 21 countries. Then we asked our most distinguished colleagues to gather for the impossible job of judging this great work. On this special broadcast, we bring you the 11 winners and behind-the-scenes interviews with the makers of these remarkable stories. We begin this hour with one of our Best New Artist Award winners. This award recognizes the work of a producer who, despite being in the field two years or less, has an original voice and a great sense of story. We look forward to hearing more from this artist, and that's certainly true of winner Rosa Golan, who mesmerized our judges with her own story about her close friend and a question she's never quite had the nerve to ask him. Here's an excerpt from The Discussion. Just a warning, this story contains graphic violence and may not be appropriate for all listeners. When was the first... Do you have a memory of the first moment that you knew? Um, that you just knew that someone had taken away your mother from you? Well, because it happened so young, I was told you know, she died in a car crash kind of thing. Really? Just because just it's a lot more normal. Yeah. And you kind of see that happening in film and TV. At a younger yeah. age, car crashes are more understandable to grasp. But I would have been about five. Clearly, Nan was talking to one of the other kids' parents at school because a few people were just wondering why it was Nan always there and never Mum. And she told them. And then somehow this kid had found out something because I think I was telling people who were asking inquisitively as kids do what happened and I was telling them oh she died in a car crash but then one kid said no that's not true and I didn't understand it then and I didn't believe him of course but then I asked my nan when she picked me up and I was sitting in the back seat little little chauffeur (laughs) and she took my hand and it's interesting because a lot of the saddest moments of my life I've been in the backseat of that car or sitting in that car and then in the car and she's always took my hand. And she said, no, this is what happened. And in really nice words, I can't remember what, she told me that it was my father's fault and that my mum had been killed. There's always twigs and... Stuff that falls down from that big gum tree just there. Always falls onto the top. So I always have to make sure she's nice and clean. Not covered in sticks and leaves and stuff because we don't want that because she's beautiful. And then this is mummy. And this is great grandma. Nana. We got ants today. Lovely. 
you don't have any memories of your own, of your mother. How have you formed them? How have you collected them? I think a lot of what I remember of my mum isn't necessarily a memory. They're not memories. I feel like I've got memories of being with her when I was younger, but they're not memories because she wasn't there. It's like a, a patchwork of people's memories who have told me stories of how much they loved her and they've told of some way she's been really cheeky or some time she's been really loving and caring. And I've kind of put them all together to form my own memories, which is quite interesting. And having seen her stuff and her belongings and treasuring them, you've got like that emotion and you've got, when you, when you touch something of hers, it's like, I know she's touched that. And so my memories are that they're not real. They're completely a figment of my own imagination, but they feel real. And I think that's what matters to me. Lock in the vase. They smell beautiful. And I think mum would love them. Yeah, she'd love them. I'm sure she would. So I would have been 18 months old, year and a half. Very young bubba. And from speaking to family and looking through documents that kind of reflect on what happened, Apparently my mum and dad were kind of going through a very rough patch and they were essentially looking at getting separated and he, he was accusing her of cheating on him and whatnot. But I know in my heart that that couldn't possibly be true. But um, they were separate. They were living apart at that time and um, I was left just with one of my mum's friends. And this was up on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. She went back just to collect some things, I think some clothes and a few bits of furniture and that. And she, I think she was in the kitchen or something. And, or she went to a room and he was in the kitchen and then she came back. And as she came back in, he, he, he hit her across the head with an iron, which had apparently, that was it. Like that would have, that killed her. The blunt, the blunt force trauma was enough it, to cause enough brain injury that she was, she was dead. But um, it then went further and it's quite dark. And I suppose given that he was in a state of just believing that she cheated on him and it was, um, he'd broken his heart, that he was in such a fit of rage that he took a knife and he also slit her throat. And I can't even remember if this is 100% accurate from what I've looked at court reports and looked at all that, but apparently That was an excerpt from The Discussion, produced by Rosa Golan for Pocket Docs from ABC Radio National in Australia. Rosa won a 2017 Third Coast Best New Artist Award. Yo no escuché estos cassettes de mi mamá cuando ella los grabó. Claro, eran mensajes entre ellos y no para nosotros los hijos. Y quizá va a sonar tan simple, tan insignificante, pero no lo es. 
Last year, Third Coast added a new award to its fleet. Aware that our field is ever-expanding in its content, format, and reach, we recognize that our understanding of the world cannot and should not be limited to only what is produced in English. As a result, we created the Best Documentary Foreign Language Award. This year, it goes to Los Casetes del Exilio. It's the story of a family living in Chile in the 70s, torn apart by a political coup a mother and her children in Santiago, and a father living in exile in France. For many years, they kept in touch via cassette tapes mailed back and forth. One of those children is Radio Ambulante producer Dennis Maxwell. And when the tapes resurfaced recently, he knew he'd found hidden gems. Dennis tells his family's story in Los Cassetes del Exilio, the cassettes of exile. And since this piece is in Spanish, We'll share just a short but beautiful sample here. Después de un tiempo, mi papá ya no era el único que grababa cassettes. Nosotros también. Como todos los niños, éramos bastante curiosos en términos de explorar las las posibilidades que daba la nueva tecnología. No, esa no. Cántale, perrita querida. No. Y cuando le grabábamos, lo hacíamos con mucha naturalidad. Para nosotros esa máquina era parte de nuestra vida, siempre ahí, siempre relacionada con él. Ya, un, dos, tres. Yo muy tempranito me levanto a la mañana, lavo mis manitos y también... O le contábamos con lujo de detalles cosas que habíamos hecho. Esta, por ejemplo, es mi hermana Gailey. Hoy día es 24 de marzo, creo. Ah, sí, eso me dijo mi mamá. 24 de marzo. Que ayer, eh, ayer domingo, fuimos a, a, ¿cómo se llama?, al cajón del Maipo, por allá, por donde está la represa, allá en, ¿cómo se llama esto? Casi siempre nosotros grabábamos por un lado del cassette, y si mi abuela estaba ese día de visita, grababa algo con nosotros, y mi mamá casi siempre grababa por el otro lado. Hola, gordito. Este era como un diván, ¿eh? Quería hacerte una introducción musical. Por ahí más adelante a lo mejor te canto una canción que me gusta mucho y que me... La estamos recién sacando con el nano. Le contaba sobre nosotros. Denis está bien. Un poco flaco lo encuentro. Pero está bien. Me encanta andar haciéndose el payaso, haciendo chistes y bromas. Tiene un, un carácter muy lindo el Denis. Y claro, le contaba sobre ella. No sé, a pesar de que hace tanto tiempo que no, no te hablaba o no te escribía, no sé, en este momento como que se me van la, todas las cosas que te quiero decir. That was a short sample from Los Casetes del Exilio, produced by Dennis Maxwell for Radio Ambulante. About this story, the judges said, we live our ordinary lives against the backdrop of grand historical events. By the end, the personal and historical forces merge to pose a bigger question. How much are we the masters of our fates? And how should that change how we judge and are judged by the people we love? If you want to listen to the whole story, check out radioatlas.org, where you'll find a subtitled video version of this documentary, so you can follow along as you listen. It's a beautiful way to enjoy the entire story, and you can also hear many other wonderful subtitled works.
This year's Honorable Mention Award went to a story from the podcast The Longest Shortest Time. This episode is one of a series chronicling the lives of a gay couple, Tristan and Biff, who become adoptive parents literally overnight. And then, after a few years and much soul-searching, decide to try and have a biological child as well. This was possible because Tristan is transgender and still had his uterus. After their first pregnancy ended in miscarriage, we pick up their story well into Tristan's second pregnancy. Here's Tristan, Biff, and host Hillary Frank. Okay, here we go. So this is Tristan, and I'm here with Biff. Hello. Please, God, cut that out. (laughs) Please edit that part out. (laughs) This, of course, is Tristan and Biff. Now, Tristan and Biff have similar voices, but they have very different dispositions, especially when it comes to the subject of Tristan getting pregnant. Tristan had been fantasizing about it since long before the first pregnancy. You kind of want someone to, like, turn around and start to cry and, like, pick you up and be like, of course, I would love to make a baby with you. (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, Tristan has all sorts of fantasies about all sorts of things. (laughs) Tristan's a dreamer. And I'm, I'm a realist. Biff eventually did come around to the idea. He got pretty invested in it, actually. That was one of the reasons that Tristan's miscarriage was so hard for both of them. After they lost the baby, Biff was shaken, and he wanted to wait a year before trying again to give both of them a chance to catch their breath. Waiting, though, when you're transgender is complicated. In order to get pregnant in the first place, Tristan had to stop taking testosterone, the hormone that helped his body transition from female to male. Waiting another year to have a baby would mean that Tristan would have to either stay off testosterone for that year, or he'd need to go back on testosterone, then come back off of it again, which Biff realized would be a physical and emotional roller coaster for Tristan. And then after like six weeks, (laughs) I was like, you know what? Never mind. (laughs) I don't like this waiting longer thing. Um, Why don't we just start trying again? To get the baby making started, they took a tropical vacation to Mexico. Which sounds really bougie. Um, And it kind of was. It was really great. I got to be with him on the other side of this pretty tough experience and look at him and just remember how much I not just love this person, but also really like this person. It was a little weird because Tristan was not able to drink, so I had to drink by myself the whole time. And um, and we started trying during that trip, and it didn't work, and it didn't work for several months after. Tristan did start having regular periods again for the first time in over a decade. He was meticulously tracking his cycle with apps and thermometers, trying to conceive at all the right times, month after month, after month. There were a couple of times for sure that I was like, oh, that one chance we had it, it didn't work. Maybe this door is is closed for us. I think a thing that a lot of people feel when they're trying to get pregnant and it isn't happening is like, my body is failing me. Did you have feelings like that? You know, I think I had to work so hard to feel great about my body that I didn't ever blame it on on my body. I I just sort of thought maybe this isn't meant to be. You know what I mean? Maybe we learned what we were supposed to learn from this experience and, and we need to just sort of accept where we are and this beautiful family we have, which is not a consolation prize at all. 
And so we were actually getting to the point after like six months where we were like, you know what, maybe, maybe we need to talk about like how long should we try before we just say we're not going to do it anymore. And one morning I woke up and I felt really, really bad. Um, like I had a fever bad, like lying on the tiles of the bathroom floor because how cool they are feels good on your face kind of bad. Um, it, I don't know if that has ever happened to you. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay, good. Tristan asked Biff to take the kids to school. He was not feeling well enough to drive. And Biff was like, are you sure you're not pregnant? And Tristan was like, no way. He checked his ovulation, had not ovulated yet that month. And I randomly grabbed one of the P tests um, and it came back positive. And I was like, oh my God, this is actually happening again. At this point, Biff had gotten back from dropping off the kids. He was taking a nap. And I went and I had to go wake him up. And I was like, ah, I'm, I am pregnant. What did he say? Well, you know, I woke him up, so he was a little bit sleepy. <laughs> he was a little bit sleepy, but he, you know, he was just like, "I, I told you, I told you, um, I told you I so." That's I, that's the like romantic you so. answer you got back. <laughs> that's right. It's typical, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And he was like, "I'm really excited to start planning for you, but like, is it okay with you if I go back to sleep now?" <laughs> <laughs> In true Biff style, his excitement was subtle. But Tristan says he's learned to appreciate the cool ways that Biff does show his enthusiasm. Pretty early on, Biff started getting the baby's room ready, thinking of names, buying Tristan his favorite vegan jerky at the grocery store. This time, Tristan says things have been different for him, too. He's been making a conscious effort to enjoy the pregnancy. He's been geeking out on the sciencey stuff, the wonder of it all. I know it sounds really stupid, but... I just couldn't stop thinking, like, this is how we make more people. We grow them inside of other people's torsos. <laughs> just like the <laughs> no, sheer it's, reality. It's totally crazy. <laughs> it's so crazy. You know, each week I, it was something new and exciting. Like, oh, this is the week when the like ears are developed enough that they're actually sending a signal to the brain and hearing starts to happen. This is the week, you know, every single week, something really, really new and exciting is, is happening. But don't let Tristan fool you. He definitely stepped into a very cautious phase emotionally. Like Biff noticed Tristan weighing himself a lot. Well, yeah, because before the miscarriage, I was gaining, 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 and then I stopped gaining weight. You know, just like four or five days before we had the ultrasound where I learned that the pregnancy was not viable. So in those first few weeks, I was weighing myself obsessively. I also kept taking the pregnancy tests for like weeks afterwards just to make sure. I don't know why I thought a pregnancy wait, test like would show me. even if you had me. a miscarriage, wouldn't it still show positive? Listen. Listen, this is not rooted in like rationale here. This is just double checking. Like, what if? That was an excerpt from The Accidental Gay Parents, Part 5, produced by Hilary Frank and Abigail Keel for the podcast The Longest Shortest Time. It won the 2017 Third Coast Honorable Mention. The judges said this story takes an extraordinary situation and makes it ordinary. 
it's a tour de force of radio storytelling. To hear this entire story and the Accidental Gay Parents series, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Twenty seventeen marked a big year in our listening landscape, with more great podcasts than ever before and more limited series in which one story is told over multiple episodes. One took the country by storm, S Town. We at Third Coast were so impressed by this innovative, complex, beautifully written series that we chose it for the twenty seventeen Director's Choice Award. It's a story that starts as a traditional investigation into corruption and wrongdoing in rural Alabama, and over the course of seven chapters becomes something much newer and stranger, a literary profile of one man's life. Here's a short teaser from early in the series when reporter Brian Reed takes his first trip to visit John B. McLemore. On a windy afternoon in October 2014, I'm driving through Woodstock, Alabama, about 40 minutes southwest of Birmingham, headed to meet John for the first time. To get to his house, rather than use his address, he suggested I navigate by latitude and longitude. And even then, I miss his place the first time past. It's just thick woods all around. From the road, I have no idea there's a house back there. But when I come back by, I notice there's an opening in the trees and a dirt driveway cut through the forest. It takes me deep into the woods, trees arching over it, until finally I reach a clearing with an old wooden house with three chimneys that looks like it hasn't changed since the Civil War. The whole place feels like it's of another time, and it is, literally. John doesn't follow daylight savings, so his property's on a time zone separate from the world around it. The front door of the house opens, and a man comes bounding out of it. John, how are you? I found it. Nice to meet you. There's no nice to meet you back, no how you doing, no handshake. John just takes off around the side of the house with a pack of dogs following him. He's a redhead with red goatee and glasses, looks a bit younger than his 48 years, in ratty jeans and ratty sneakers, and a Sherwin-Williams t-shirt that he probably got for buying a can of paint at the hardware store. Presumably he's giving me a tour, but I'm scrambling to keep up with him. He's naming the plants all around us as we move. Goldenrod, Russian sage, a climbing ladybank's rose. There are stone walls everywhere, wildly colored bushes, a giant bed of purple petunias stretching for hundreds of feet. There are apple trees leaning on trellises, tilted at a precise angle to lengthen their stems. There's a sweet smell floating on the breeze, the smell of the thorny Eliagnus bush, John tells me. John's 13 dogs are running around freely, and they have a doghouse that is an actual house with two floors and a small swimming pool outside made of stone. You're not afraid to walk about 110 feet, are you? Nope. John and I go past his workshop, which I'll later learn is filled with disassembled clocks, as well as the rare machines and tools and chemicals he uses to restore them. We go past a big trailer and two old school buses, one yellow and one blue. They're filled with lumber for John's house that he's aging to get the wood as close as possible to what they used to build the house 200 years ago. We go through a small gated cemetery where the people who built this place have been buried since the 1880s. Having finished life's duty, one footstone reads, they now sweetly rest. Later, we'll also meet John's mother, Mary Grace McLemore. 
here? I'm sorry? How do you like down here? I'm enjoying myself very much. Sir? I'm enjoying myself very much. I'm glad. Yes. She's a tiny, brittle-looking woman who, I swear to you, can go a whole conversation without blinking once. She's been on this land her whole life. Forever. Seems about right. This is an old area. Yeah? Where we live, it's real old. How old? (laughs) Since time, I reckon. Finally, John and I reach a hill. We come to the crest, and there it is, the maze, stretching out below us. Though he and I have completely different reactions to it. Oh, God, here we go. See the brown from here? Oh, my gosh. John's upset. They've been in a drought for weeks, a D1 drought. He's been monitoring it. And he sees the hedges turning brown. But I'm just in awe. The maze is so cool. The oh, my gosh. of climate change. I mean, you may see climate change, but this is an incredible approach, John. You know, we're going to have to get the cutters. I said before y'all came out here, I was going to get out here and do something, but it never happened. I just got miserably depressed and said, ah, screw it. I think it's We enter the maze, and John rearranges the position of three gates inside. Let's go ahead and put this one here. To set a new solution. Let's go ahead and move this one off to here. John built the maze as a series of splits. One path comes to an end, then it splits left and right. Each of those paths end, then they split left and right. Over and over again, you have to choose which way to go. John and I are walking through, trying to reach the middle. You know, I designed this thing myself, so it was designed by Mad Man. That's what people tell me. I do feel like I'm walking around in your brain or something. Just imagine when it gets over your head. Saved on John's computer is a comic, and when I think about it now, I realize it captures his worldview perfectly. It's three drinking glasses with arms and legs and cute little faces, each with the same amount of liquid inside. The first one smiles and says, I'm half full. The next one frowns and says, I'm half empty. The last one throws both arms up and says, I think this is piss. Later, John will take me on a tour of Bibb County, and this worldview will be on full display. He'll rattle off a constant stream of grievances as we go. Historic buildings are being demolished overnight. Dollar Generals and Walmarts are popping up in their stead, serving a populace that is getting fatter and more tattooed by the day. Another junkyard. No positive comment, no matter how innocuous, survives his virtuosic negativity. At one point, I mentioned that the landscape around here is really quite pretty. There you go. There's our legacy. Going down the road, lumber truck. Carting away that pretty landscape, one tree at a time. In the afternoon, it'll start to thunderstorm something John has been saying all day that they desperately need to combat the drought. So that's good, right? Uh, we're, we're getting rain, what, about 10 weeks too late. Now everything's died. I'm glad you're getting something. Everything I say. It's a beautiful butterfly. Yeah, we don't have as many butterflies as we should have this year either. It's something else that disturbs me. It's a comprehensive tour. Off on the right is where I went to high school. I like to call it Auschwitz. Yeah. See the crematorium? See the long, low-killing facility on either end? No, it looks like a high school with like a baseball game going out in front. <laughs> to me, it looks like Auschwitz. Hmm. Before the jaunt around the town, back inside the maze, John and I have stopped walking for a second. We've hit dead end after dead end, and now John is craning his neck and scoping out our options. <laughs> he scouts his direction. It is. It's kind of funny to be lost in something you designed yourself, isn't it? Let's see. Oh, no! We're stuck. Hmm. 
Are you really lost or are you putting it on for me? actually lost in our own maze. Isn't that exciting? Oh, 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 I see what I did. Oh, I see what I did. Oh, I see what I did. Evidently, while the various gate combinations create 64 different solutions, there is one combination that leaves you with absolutely no way out. Oh God, it's possible to set it up where there is no solution and I accidentally did that. It's like a null set or something? A null set, there you go. I can't tell if John's being straight with me. John seems so smart and in control, it's hard to believe he could accidentally be stumped by his own maze. I could see him engineering this situation to make things more, I don't know, literary? conjuring this garden path metaphor that he knows I won't be able to resist. I had to leave Bibb County to find a hotel, so I'm in Bessemer, a small city about 15 miles down the highway, where the far reaches of the Birmingham metro area dissolve into the rural counties like Bibb to the west. I'm at a Best Western just off the exit ramp behind a Waffle House. Even though I'm exhausted from traveling, I turn on the lamp and pull out the bedtime reading John's given me. Bedtime reading, that's what he called it. There's William Faulkner's short story, A Rose for Emily, narrated by the gossipy collective townsfolk of imaginary Jefferson, Mississippi, who tell the tale of Miss Emily Grierson, an unmarried, middle-aged outcast who lives alone with her father and after he dies, holes up in her house for years. And then there's The Renegade by Shirley Jackson, about a woman who recently moved from the city to a small country town, whose family dog, Lady, is accused one morning of killing a neighbor's chickens. The woman listens in growing dread throughout the day as townsperson after townsperson laughs at the torture and death that will befall Lady as a result, including, finally, the woman's own children, who describe to Lady's face in gleeful detail how they will use a spiked collar to chop off her head. I notice a unifying theme to all these stories, a creeping sense of foreboding in these places that are allegedly home to polite society, an undercurrent of depravity. That was a short sample from the podcast S-Town, produced by Brian Reed and Julie Snyder. The entire seven-episode series won the 2017 Director's Choice Award. If you haven't listened yet, we encourage you to set aside a bit of time to do so. You will not be disappointed. Now we've come to the 2017 Third Coast Gold Award winner, deemed by our judges to be the best story of the year. A new story handled so beautifully that it feels like a film playing out before your very ears. In July 2016, the world watched a man die live on their phones after a traffic stop in suburban Minnesota. This is the story of that man, Philando Castile, and the officer, Geronimo Yanez, charged in his death. The judges selected it as the Gold Award winner and said it's a standout example of journalism in the public interest. While the events themselves have been poured over in other media, audio allowed listeners to experience all vantage points in real time. Here is the entirety of The Traffic Stop, which was produced before the police dash cam video of this event became public. Just a warning, this story contains graphic violence and strong language and may not be appropriate for all listeners. Here are reporters Reham Fashir and John Collins. (laughs) 
On Saturday, July 2nd, 2016, the Super USA convenience store in Lauderdale, Minnesota, was open for business for the holiday weekend. Lauderdale's a tiny suburb right between Minneapolis and Falcon Heights. It covers less than half a square mile. It's patrolled by the St. Anthony Police Department. The store is a squat brick building on Larpenter Avenue with neon beer signs in the window. Inside is your standard convenience store spread. Donuts on the shelf, pizza slices under a heat lamp, lottery tickets under glass behind the counter. At 7.30 that Saturday night, two men walked into the store. The police report describes the men as African-American with dreadlocks, glasses, and baseball hats. One of the hats has marijuana leaves on it. They held the cashier at gunpoint. They took $700 in cash and Newport cigarettes and walked out. The police got there just three minutes later, but the men were gone. Two officers responded that night. One of them was Geronimo Yanez. Four days later, when Yanez was patrolling that same stretch of Larpenter Avenue, the robbery was still on his mind. I'm Rehem Fashir. I'm John Collins. And this is 74 Seconds. We're reporters with Minnesota Public Radio. In this podcast, we're telling the story of a traffic stop that ended with Philando Castile dead and Officer Geronimo Yanez facing charges. In this episode, we're going to walk you through the night it happened. The entire encounter, from flashing lights to firing shots, took just 74 seconds. And that armed robbery we just told you about for $700 in cash and cigarettes? That's what set this all in motion. On July 6, 2016, Officer Yanez was working the night shift. He started at 6 p.m. We checked his work logs. Things started out pretty typical. He pulled over two drivers, wrote two speeding tickets, both on Larpenter Avenue. Then, a white Oldsmobile caught his attention. It was 9 p.m. and still light out, a long summer day. In the front seat, he could make out two people. 20 on the 20. What's your location? That's Yanez calling over the radio to his partner, Joseph Kauser, who was in another car. I'm going to stop a car. 203, Tom, Tom, Mary. I'm going to check that. He's every reason to pull it over. The two occupants just look like the people that were involved in a robbery. The driver and the passenger in the Oldsmobile just look like people that were involved in our robbery, he says. At some point during this exchange, Yanez runs the car's license plate, but comes up with nothing. It's not stolen. There are no warrants out for the registered owner, Philando Castile. But Yanez keeps following. The driver looks more like one of our suspects, just because of the wide set nose. I couldn't get a good look at the passenger. His nose, Yana says, reminds him of the robbery suspects. I'll wait for you. He tells Kowser he'll wait for him before he makes the stop, and he continues to follow. Tommy, where are you at? Lark Cleveland. Still Eastbound. 
Philando Castile and Diamond Reynolds, in the front seat of that white Oldsmobile, don't know what's happening yet. They've got groceries and Diamond's four-year-old daughter in the back. They've got the windows down in the summer heat. They keep traveling down Larpenter. It's a busy four-lane county road. It slices across a string of suburbs, past fields and strip malls and apartment buildings. As the two cars near the corner of Larpenter and Fry, Yanez turns on his flashing lights. Everything that happens next was captured by Yanez's dash cam and a microphone he was wearing. But we can't play that for you. We've never heard or seen the tape. Because it's an ongoing case, we likely won't hear it until the trial. Someone who does have access to it is Prosecutor John Choi. Going off that tape, Choi narrated the events of the night at a press conference months later when he explained why he was pressing charges against Yanez. The dash cam video reveals the sequence of events that transpired during this critical minute. So, what we know about these next 74 seconds largely comes from Choi and from Diamond Reynolds, who watched it all happen from the passenger seat. She told her story on Facebook Live that night and again the next morning at a protest. We were coming from the grocery store from putting food in my house for myself and my daughter. Diamond and Choi's accounts are almost perfectly in sync. So here's the stop, by the second. Yanez turns on his squad car lights at 9.04 p.m. The 74 seconds start ticking. It takes Philando Castile 12 seconds to pull to the side of the road. 62 seconds to go. Philando comes to a complete stop at the corner of Larpenter and Fry, right in front of a sign for the Minnesota State Fair. He puts his car into park. Yana stops too. He gets out of his squad car. Kauser arrives and gets out of his. 47 seconds to go. Yanez takes lead. Kauser hangs back. Officer Yanez approached Castile's vehicle on the driver's side. That's John Choi describing what happened. Yanez could see both of Philando's hands as he approached. He could smell weed, he said later. Officer Yanez described Castile as initially having his left arm over the steering wheel with both hands in view. Yanez puts his hand on his belt near his gun. 40 seconds to go. Officer Yanez positioned himself facing the driver's side of the window leaned his head forward, exchanged greetings with Castile, and informed him of his brake light problem. And we got pulled over what allegedly was supposed to be a broken taillight. When he, he let us know that we had a broken taillight, he asked us, were we aware of it? We said no. As Yanez is talking to Philando, Kauser approaches the other side of the Oldsmobile, stopping near the back passenger door. 29 seconds to go. Officer Yanez asked Castile to produce his driver's license and proof of insurance. 24 seconds. Castile first provided him with his insurance card. 14 seconds. Yanez looks at the insurance card. He puts it in his pocket. He still needs to see ID. My boyfriend carries all his information in a thick wallet in his right side back pocket. 10 seconds. Castile then calmly 
and in a non-threatening manner informed Officer Yanez, Sir, I have to tell you that I do have a firearm on me. As he's reaching for his back pocket wallet, he lets the officer know, Officer, I have a firearm on me. Seven seconds. Before Castillo completed the sentence, Officer Yanez interrupted and calmly replied, Okay, and placed his right hand on the holster of his own holstered gun. Officer Yanez then said, Okay, don't reach for it then. Castillo tried to respond, but was interrupted by Officer Yanez, who said, Don't pull it out. Castillo responded, I'm not pulling it out. And Reynolds also responded by saying, He's not pulling it out. I begin to yell, but he's licensed to carry. Then, Officer Yanez screamed, Don't pull it out and quickly pulled his own gun with his right hand while he reached inside the driver's side window with his left hand. Officer Yanez pulled his left arm out of the car and then fired seven shots in rapid succession into the vehicle. After that, he began to take off shots. Buh, 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 buh. Don't move, don't move. And it's over. The seventh and final shot was fired at 9.06 and 2 seconds p.m. From flashing lights to the final shots, it all took 74 seconds. Yanaz's partner, Joseph Kauser, who was standing at the back of the car, never drew his gun. He never even touched it. After the final shot, Reynolds frantically yelled, You just killed my boyfriend. Philando Castile moaned and uttered his final words. I wasn't reaching for it. That's all we know about those critical moments. And we know that Philando had nothing to do with the robbery at the convenience store. What the jury will have to consider, though, is what Yanez thought. And that is the big question. Philando Castile said he wasn't reaching for his gun. Diamond Reynolds said he wasn't reaching for his gun. But minutes after the shooting, Yanez said that he thought he was. Stay with me. We got pulled over for a busted tail light in the back. Less than a minute after the final shot, Diamond Reynolds turned on Facebook Live. He ain't killed my boyfriend. He's licensed. He's carrying. This is the video that you've probably seen. It went everywhere. In his wallet, out his um pocket, and he let the officer know. In it, she's got the phone pointed at her face. She could see herself on the screen. When she turns the camera, you can see Philando. Blood is spreading across his white t-shirt. His seatbelt is still buckled. You get a glimpse of Officer Yanez at the driver's side window. You can't see his face, but you can see his gun. He still has it pointed at them. Even as Philando slumps in his seat and groans. We're waiting for a back. I will, sir. No worries. I will. 
told him not to reach for it. I told him to get his hand out. He had, you told him to get his ID, sir, and his driver's license. Oh my God, please don't tell me he's dead. You can't ignore how calm Diamond is in this. She's even polite. Yanez is yelling and swearing. Diamond is calling him sir. Please don't tell me my boyfriend just went like that. Keep your hands where they are, please. Yes, I will, sir. I'll keep my hands where they are. Now remember, there's a third person in the car for all this. Someone who saw everything. Someone who was watching from the back, still buckled into her car seat. Diamond's four-year-old daughter. After the shooting, Officer Kauser opens the door and unbuckles her. There's a bullet lodged in the back seat, on the other side from where the child was sitting. Driver. At gunpoint. Juvenile female child is with 6920. A couple other squads block off intersections. Get supervisors here. Freeze them out. Copy, one adult female in custody, drivers at gunpoint, juvenile females with 6920. We need a couple other squads to block off the intersection. We need supervisors on scene there. Officers from the nearby suburb of Roseville start to arrive. All they know is that an officer has been involved in a shooting. What they see when they get there is Yanez, still pointing his gun at Philando and Diamond in the car. Time 2107. Engine 23 and Medic 23. Larpenter Avenue West and Fry Street. Police on scene. Shooting. Stand by for police. They start to take control of the scene. Philando still bleeding in the front seat. They order Diamond out of the car. You can hear this on her Facebook Live video. Get the female passenger out! Exit the car right now with your hands up! Let me see your hands! Exit now! Keep them up! Keep them up! One of the officers has an AR-15 rifle pointed at her. The cops order her to walk backwards towards them. She has her hands raised over her head, but she's still holding her phone. Get on your knees. Get on your knees. They order Diamond to her knees. The phone drops. You just see sky and power lines. They handcuff her. You can hear the click. Man, you're just being detained right now until we get this all sorted out, okay? They threw my phone, Facebook. Please don't tell me, Lord Jesus, please don't tell me. Once Diamond is out of the car, Roseville officers open the Oldsmobile's driver's side door and unbuckle Philando. They pull him out of the car and lay him on the ground. Now there's a second video of what happened that night. Catherine Bleth shot it as she stood across the street. She filmed the officers performing CPR. She shared this video with us, and we talked to her about that night. She lives in an apartment complex right at that intersection. She was just getting home when she saw all the lights. My neighbors were saying that they thought it was fireworks. I do remember thinking, like, this person is not going to make it if they're having to administer CPR this time. Paramedics arrive at this point. They take over from the officers. As they roll Philando Castile onto a backboard, 
Roseville police saw his handgun begin to slide out of the right pocket of his shorts. Yanez is still there through all of this. He's talking with other officers. And what he says was captured on his microphone. We've seen bits of the transcript. He didn't tell me where the f***ing gun was, he says. I was getting f***ing nervous, he says. In all the chaos, with the flashing lights of more police cars and an ambulance, what Catherine Bleth remembers in all this was Diamond. She could hear her from across the street. And I think the most notable thing that I remember happening that was probably the hardest to witness, actually, was that you could hear the woman, you could hear her crying from the police car and that they would, you know, occasionally they brought her in and I saw them close it in on her. The Roseville police have Diamond in the back of a police car at this point. Someone has given her her phone back and it's still streaming, but the battery's dying, she says. She asks for help from anyone who's listening. Her daughter is in the back of the squad car with her through this. She's only four, and she tries to comfort her mother. I can't really do shit because they got me handcuffed. It's okay, Mommy. I can't believe they just did this. I'm fucking... It's okay, I'm right here with you. <laughs> oh, my God. It's getting dark now. The street is filled with flashing lights. An ambulance pulls away with Philando Castile. Officers take Diamond Reynolds and her daughter to the Roseville police station. Yanez gets a ride back to St. Anthony. By early morning, he's home. Meanwhile, Diamond Reynolds' Facebook Live video is ricocheting around the internet. It's being shared across the country by horrified viewers. In the Twin Cities, it's stirring people from their homes. 10, 11, midnight, 1 a.m., people keep showing up on Larpenter Avenue to see for themselves and to yell at police. You should be ashamed of yourselves! You should be really ashamed of yourselves! You have no heart standing up for a murderer! It's late, but dozens gather. They're still there, in the middle of the night, when Philando Castile's white Oldsmobile is towed away. They're still there as his blood is washed off the pavement. The Traffic Stop was produced by Tracy Mumford with Hans Buteau. It was reported by John Collins and Reham Fashir for the podcast 74 Seconds from Minnesota Public Radio. The show documented the events leading up to and including the Philando Castile trial. The traffic stop won Third Coast's top honor, the Gold Award. We spoke with producer Tracy Mumford about the decision to dissect Philando Castile's death down to the second. What we knew, I mean, we'd always been really interested in this number. When you looked at, when they released, you know, this trove of documents, you were able to look second by second at what happened. Um, And 74 seconds is not very long. That's very fast. So the idea that all of this could have happened in 74 seconds, your first question is, how? And we don't have those answers. There's a lot of answers that you can't get. But we thought, 
let's break it down in the simplest format possible, which is, you know, real time when we try and convey this to the audience. And I'm wondering when you started, why you decided to tell this story in a podcast? Yeah, well, we obviously knew this was a huge story from the moment that it happened. And it only got bigger when they announced that there would be charges against the officer. And so we knew we could imagine what it would sound like if it got the traditional treatment on our radio, um, which is how we've covered everything up until now. And it means, um, you know, cutting this story into five minute windows or longer talk show discussions. And we just knew the story was bigger than the formats available to us in our traditional radio process. And obviously, podcasts have been gaining speed for a while here. And we thought, let's try it. This is a story that needs more time and needs more space. And maybe podcasts are the way to let it happen. Some of the tape in this piece is really difficult to listen to. And I'm wondering, how did you decide what to play and what not to play? I mean, we just had of a lot of really interesting conversations and debates and um, going into this about with a story that has such difficult audio and such uh, difficult emotions and things like that, how much is too much? And if you hold something back, why are you holding it back? Um, You know, you have this tape that you're like, can I play this? And if I don't play it, am I censoring this or am I sanitizing it? Um, So there just gets to be these very difficult questions around very difficult tape that uh, you have to have long discussions about and then ultimately make decisions that people are going to hear this or not going to hear it. and, And you have to live with that. That was Tracy Mumford, producer of this year's Third Coast Gold Award winner, The Traffic Stop. The texture of the human voice is like a fingerprint. No two are the same. And woven through that texture are the threads of human experience. Warmth, doubt, fear, glee, agony, and wit, which we hear in a word, a sentence, a silence. We are honored to bring this kind of rich, layered storytelling to you and to celebrate the best of the best. Thanks for coming along. That brings us to the end of this hour of Best of the Best, the 2017 Third Coast Festival broadcast, sharing the best docs of the year. The program was produced by Dennis Funk with assistance from Isabel Vasquez and distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. The executive director of the Third Coast Festival is Johanna Zorn. The artistic associate is Maya Goldberg-Safer. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago.